Economic Partnership Agreement, which I think we have discussed in uh, uh, quite extensively in all the various dimensions. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, we had planned to have an NGO um, on the on the panel, and uh, we had a, um, a, um, a decline, um, a last minute dropout from an NGO, from the NGO participant that was foreseen. Um, so, uh, so perhaps we can also use this panel to discuss at least at some level also the inequality debate that is of course very much related um, to, to the trade debate. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of the pushback against global trade agreements, um, be it in the United States, be it elsewhere, comes from the fact that uh, trade uh, does not only create winners, it does create losers in our societies. Um, and, um, and therefore, uh, distributional questions of trade uh, policy certainly are part of the important debate that we should be having when, when talking about, uh, about, um, uh, about uh, trade, trade arrangements. Now, now this panel um, uh, has uh, four um, absolutely excellent speakers. Um, we will start with Maria Asenius, uh, who's the head of cabinet to Commissioner Malmström. Uh, then we will have uh, Tamotsu Nakamura, the dean from uh, Kobe University, Yuichi Matsubayashi, um, who used to be a visiting <laughs> fellow here at Bruegel a number of years ago and who is now actually uh, uh, the deputy uh, uh, dean and professor of economics at Kobe University. And last but not least, our own senior fellow, André Sapir, um, uh, here at Bruegel, and uh, very um, uh, a trade expert, um, uh, working, working here with us at Bruegel. Um, so um, the topic, I think, is perhaps a little bit broader, the strategic questions on trade arrangements. Um, and perhaps, Maria, I, I'll give the floor first to you to, to uh, start, kick it off. Thank you, Guntram. Okay. Then please allow me to first set the scene a little bit. Um, global trade is facing a severe crisis today. I think trade has become a scapegoat. It is increasingly blamed for the pains of globalization, for shortcomings of domestic policy and, and a range of other issues. And on top of that, the international rules-based system is facing its deepest crisis since the Second World War. Rules at the core of the international trading system are increasingly being challenged, increasing, uh, including by a country that actually helped build this, this uh, uh, multilateral order. So what shall we do? Well, one thing that we should not do is to resort to protectionism because protectionism doesn't actually protect. So what should we do instead? Well, one obvious uh, candidate uh, is to modernize the uh, international rule book. And the EU is, is a leading advocate of the rules-based international trade system with the World Trade Organization at its core. Over decades, together with other partners, we have gradually set up a clear set of rules that create certainty for business and stability for our economies. So doing away with the WTO would only increase confrontation, would replace right by might. However, we have to acknowledge that the current rule book is maybe not perfect. Um, we actually acutely need to update it because it does not properly address uh, for example, the problematic behavior of certain emerging economies, notably China. And that is why the Commission is so very keen to reform the WTO. We need modernized rules that 
address the challenges of today's world, including forced technology transfers, industrial subsidies, the role of uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, overcapacities, uh, intellectual profit, property theft, to mention a few problems. And against this background, I'm very happy that Japan took the initiative last year to organize trilateral meetings between the EU, the US, and Japan itself. And we have already now had four meetings at ministerial level. And I find this is a very good way of engaging the United States in this important uh, reform work. WTO reform is also mentioned as a work strand in the, in the EU-US joint statement of 25th of July. Uh, which was a result of the meeting between President Juncker and President Trump. You may have seen this. And furthermore, a joint working group um, on the topic of WTO reform was also established between the EU and China at the occasion of the EU-China summit in July this year. So a lot of talks are ongoing. Uh, for those who are real trade nerds, uh, I would like to point out that the European Commission published a concept paper uh, roughly two weeks ago. It's available on, on uh, the DigiTrade website on WTO reform. Uh, and the work that covers in particular three areas, um, new rules, how to better enforce the current ones, and also how to break the imminent deadlock um, in the appellate, um, uh, with the appellate uh, body in, in the dispute settlement system. What else can we do? Well. The EU is also keen to continue a very ambitious bilateral uh, trade agenda. And I think especially in this globally shaky context, it is smart to diversify and to have several reliable partners with whom to trade. I also particularly noted that quote from the Canadian um, uh, head of the, what was it, um, Chamber of Commerce, uh, who said something smart uh, the other day about this. Uh, and here, bilateral agreements with like-minded countries like Japan do indeed help us manage the impact of globalization and it also sends a powerful signal to the world, a political signal that we are in favor of open, fair, rules-based, uh, organized trade. And of course, uh, of course, we are also interested in the economic benefits that have been widely discussed this morning um, in the Japan context, but I mean, generally speaking, uh, we have noted that every billion of exports supports 14,000 jobs across the EU. And we mustn't forget that in, in the next 10, 15 years, we expect 90% of the growth uh, globally come from places outside Europe. So, of course, it's in our interest to connect to that, to that growth. And this makes all these agreements all the more important uh, for us. And it explains why our negotiating agenda is busier than ever. I welcome very much the focus on Japan here today because um, we are talking about the largest bilateral trade agreement that we have ever negotiated, accounting for, it seems to be, between a quarter and a third of, of, of world GDP. I really hope that it can enter into force 1st of February uh, next year. I think actually to some extent we can thank President Trump uh, for the progress that we have made here. Because I think about roughly two years ago, both the EU and Japan realized that it would probably be wise to intensify and accelerate these negotiations. Uh, I think otherwise it could have taken another year or two uh, easily. Um, so thank you very much. Um, and speaking of President Trump, let me also touch a bit on the transatlantic partnership or, sorry, re or relationship. Um, 
It hasn't been so easy in the recent past, uh, particularly after the US decided to um, impose illegal and unjustified tariffs on steel and aluminium also on the EU. You may recall that we took very quick action back then. We did three things. We took the US to court uh, in the WTO. We uh, put in place some rebalancing measures and we also uh, adopted safeguards safeguards uh, so as to shield EU producers from redirected uh, imports. Yet we need to work together with the United States. Uh, it remains a, a key ally, ally and a, a of course um, um, very important global player. Uh, so we have consistently tried to build a, a positive transatlantic agenda and we were therefore happy that it was possible in July for President Juncker to agree with, with President Trump on uh, on a statement and a work plan that actually helped help de-escalate de the conflict. And of course we are now very engaged in follow-up work to implement this, this joint statement uh, where it says in the realia that we will work towards zero tariffs, zero subsidies, zero uh, trade barriers. Um, we are ready to re reduce barriers and increase trade also in, in services, chemicals, pharmaceutical, medical products and soybeans and to also have a close dialogue on standards. Um, regulatory cooperation, voluntary, a bit in the same vein as we heard about before in the Japan context. I think it's important to underline that this is not TTIP 2.0, it's not TTIP light, it is quite a new and different animal. And before we would get to a stage of, of really engaging in, in, in possible uh, tariff slashing uh, negotiations, we would ask we would do a scoping exercise and we would ask for a mandate from our uh, member states. Finally, a little bit less sexy but still very important, uh, we shouldn't forget the importance of transparency and of spreading the benefits of trade. Mm -hmm. um, the EU has become the most transparent trade negotiator in the world and I think this is really important for building trust in what we do. We now regularly publish all commission negotiating texts and recommendations and lots of explanatory memorandums and fact sheets and questions and answers in all EU languages on the DigiTrade website. And negotiations have become much more inclusive too. We now have a dedicated group of experts that advise us during negotiations and we have uh, more and more dialogues with different stakeholders both NGOs, civil society, and parliaments around the union, even, even regional parliaments sometimes. And we are working to better spread the benefits of trade. Um, for example, SMEs are chronically underrepresented in global trade, although they represent 99% of our businesses. Uh, and they have created 85% of the new jobs in the EU over the past five years. So I think they are really a good target for, for um, spreading the benefits of globalization. And I'm very proud that the EU-Japan agreement, this is the first agreement where we actually have a dedicated SME chapter uh, to make it easier for SMEs to benefit. Um, so to come to a quick conclusion here, uh, to answer the question that we have been given for this, this talk here, who are global, global leaders? Well, I would say that the EU and Japan together are leading the way in many ways. We set standards through our ambitious bilateral um, uh, trade agreement through the trilateral work that I mentioned before and also in Geneva and in other fora where we t talk about multilateral cooperation. Thank you. Please.
PowerPoint, please. Ah. Yes. Okay. Oh, thank you very much for uh, giving us to, to, to a talk and this wonderful, wonderful com, com, conference. Uh, we would like to uh, totally different uh, issues, but uh, of course it's related with international trade. And uh, uh, we are the macroeconomist, uh, so we would like to give you a general picture of the international trade from the macroeconomics and uh, kind of the long-term perspectives, right? Uh, so uh, this is this is a joint work with Professor Matsubayashi. He did research, so I will talk now. <laughs> okay, this is a, a from talk. Okay, we are talking about a, a current U.S.-China trade conflict with related with the Japanese uh, U.S.-Japan trade conflict 30, 40 years ago, right? Uh, First look at 1985, so, uh, surplus, uh, biggest surplus country is uh, Japan. Oh, it's kind of, okay, okay. Uh, biggest deficit country in the U.S. at the time. And now, uh, so uh, Japan, uh, about 30, 30 to 40% of the U.S. deficit is due to the Japan, right, at, at the time. And uh, so uh, kind, of, kind of natural, uh, naturally to happen to Japan, U.S. Japan, uh, trade conflict during that period. And uh, so look at the current situation. The most surplus country is Germany now, right? China is the next. And the most deficit country is the US. And uh, uh, yes, and 40% uh, uh, of the US trade deficit due to the China, right? So, so uh, US administration always complaining about the China's trade policies. Okay. so. Uh, these are very similar, but I uh, would like to some kind of similarity between the past uh, trade conflict between U.S. and Japan and uh, current uh, U.S. and China. Okay, so uh, first of all, two uh, countries' uh, world GDP share is about 40 percent, right? And uh, this line, okay, oh, okay, uh, this line shows that uh, the U.S. GDP, U.S. GDP. This line is a uh, Japanese GDP, right? And uh, combined to these two countries' GDP, 1980s, 1990s, almost 40%. Now, China's GDP, uh, some of China's GDP and the US GDP is about 40%, right? So, so these two countries uh, dominated the world's share of GDP. Uh, and look at the uh, trade dependency, okay? So uh, this is Japan, oh, excuse me. So, uh, uh, oh yeah. Okay, okay. So 1980s, uh, 1980s, 1990s trade dependency, well, which is a sum of the export and import divided by the total GDP, is less than 20 for U.S. and Japan, right? So these two countries less depend on the uh, trade uh, at the time. And uh, how about uh, now? Uh, this is uh, this is U.S. This is uh, I'm sorry. This is U.S. This is Japan. And, uh, this China, these three countries again uh, depend on the international trade very less, right? So uh, they can fight over the international trade because uh, their uh, trade share of GDP is very small. So if Germany, as French, Italy uh, fight again, fight over the international trade, it's a fatal, fatal fight maybe. Okay. So uh, how about the peak in the trade surplus percentage of GDP? It's peak ninety. 80s and 1990s here, 
and uh, now they're peaking out, and now Japan has a trade deficit. Okay, how about China? Uh, this is China's pictures. Everybody thinks that China has uh, sell, trade sales of GDP is increasing forever, but not, it's not true, right? Now is a peak, peak stages. We can say that uh, because of the uh, population geographies, uh, I, I will talk about later, right? Uh, this is a US, of course, US past 30, 40 years, it has, it has ha having the trade deficit. Uh, this is Germany. Germany is a very good shape because of the EU, I think, right? Uh, this is French, uh, France, okay? Uh, let's move to the, okay? This is a time series of the uh, population profiles, okay? Uh, we are looking at this one. Elderly uh, workers, elderly population. Uh, this shows the number of uh, working adults who has to take care of one elderly person. Elderly person here is 65 years or older, right? And 1980s, this is 7.6. So 7.6 uh, working elderly take care of one, took care of one uh, elderly at a time. Uh, please look at uh, these figures. Now, China is almost the same, 35 years Japan, right? So these two countries rapidly aging uh, at the peak of the trade surplus, right? So no, no question about that uh, China trade surplus will decreasing in the futures. Now it is the highest. Okay, that is a very important one. Uh, this is a aging, a pace of aging US. Uh, it's not bad, but US still uh, also uh, aging. And how about Germany? It's not good, so. Okay, anyway, uh, this is France. Okay, so uh, this is very important things. Uh, similarity should be emphasized here. Two countries share in the world GDP is about 40% during the trade conflict period. Uh, three countries less depends on the trade. And peak in the trade happens during the complex period for Japan and China, and the start of the rapid aging for Japan and China. Because of rapid aging, Japan now has a trade deficit. China will have trade deficit in the near future. And uh, how about the difference? Uh, what is the biggest difference? It's a partner or US partner or not, okay. Most Japanese believe that uh, Japan is a partner to the US, but I don't know Converse, Converse is true or not because I'm not a US citizen. Uh, anyway, uh, but uh, people worrying, uh, American people may be worrying about that uh, uh, China become a superpower both in the economy and the military, right? right? Uh, okay, uh, this is uh, again the GDP share Oh, for China and Japan, here uh, is, is the U.S. U.S. is, is maybe decreasing a bit, and uh, China is increasing. So, in 20, at least in 20 years, uh, uh, China will take over uh, U.S. and in the GDP share. Maybe so. It's a big, a big threat, and uh, uh, in the morning session, we're talking about the innovation, the R&D. It's competitive. Competition to fair in terms of uh, innovations and intellectual property, right? Uh, that is a big uh, question, not only in the U.S., in the, also in Japan, right? Uh, U.S. and Japan compete under maybe same rules. But uh, 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 how about China? Uh, this is a uh, new uh, number of patents, right? Number of patents is increasing uh, very rapidly in China. And uh, 
US and Japan is, is kind of competing, but it's almost, stay, almost stay the same numbers for past uh, 10 years. So China already overtook US innovations, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, I think uh, we think that way. Uh, okay, so which is more important, deficit or innovation race? Of course, there are, uh, in the very short term, trade deficit is very, very important. But uh, if you look at the long run prospect of the economy, innovation race is vitally important, okay? So how about the difference? Again, uh, during the US-Japan conflict, uh, Japan first introduced the voluntary export restriction to Japanese cars exported to US. And as you know, 1985, first G5 meeting took place in New York, right? This is, a, it is called Plaza Accord. And uh, Japan and the US agreed uh, uh, structural impediment initiative. This is a kind of very soft world, voluntary accord or initiative, right? And uh, now uh, we are talking about tariffs, sanctions, safe, safeguards, and a series of retaliations. So this is totally different. The other uh, things we have to mention that uh, uh, global supply chains, right? Uh, in 1980s, in 1990s, not so many countries in industrialized themselves. So the supply chains are not so long, not so complicated. So we can predict the consequence of the uh, trade conflict. But these days, the supply chains are so long and complicated. Consequences are unpredictable. And uh, maybe cut your own bodies with your own sword, right? It may be happening. Uh, I don't know, but uh, uh, actually, I have to confess, my ancestors are not samurai. Uh, actually, they are, they are farmers. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, uh, the difference should be, should be mentioned. Japan was not was not real threat to the U.S. Uh, during 1980s, 1990s. China can be in the future. Uh, coordination or fight or battles. Uh, the supply chains is very important uh, these days. And uh, rest one. Uh, so macro or micro, of course, trade deficit cannot be solved by, by trade policies, right? It's a domestic problem. Okay, watch out, okay. Even U.S. aging very rapidly, next 20 years, so the trade deficit in U.S. increasing further if they will do nothing with domestic problem. So U.S. continues the journey in searching new trade enemies, right? Uh, here, uh, U.S. Uh, US always having the uh, trade deficit. First, they find the Japan and uh, Germany, okay, it is an enemy. And now China, which is next? I don't know. And the macroeconomic coordination may help solve the problem, but cannot solve the problem completely. Uh, that is a very, very important lesson from the 1980s, 1990s trade conflict between U.S. and Japan. Okay, so. Uh, now Japan has a trade deficit, and, and as I said, Japan continue to have the trade deficit for past 20, uh, for next 20, 30 years. No question about it. We are a very aged society, and that aged society is still aging, right? So, uh, if Japan were a U.S., Japan has to start searching and uh, finding enemies, trade enemies. But it's ridiculous, right? It, Okay, uh, lesson two, uncertainties. Uh, uncertainty do matters. 
only when irreversibility exists, okay? If uncertainty happens, you can respond to those kind of uncertainty very flexibly. You don't worry about the uncertainty. But in 1980s, uh, there are lots of, lots of uncertainty in trade and exchange rates to Japan. Um, Japan companies push their production facility to overseas. So what happened? Oh, howling out happening. So because of the irreversibility, Japan experienced a very, very slow recovery from the recession, which is called sometimes lost decays. And uh, how about the US? Uh, okay. Uh, case of the US trade, okay. Uh, in the case of US-China conflict, many advanced countries invest in China, not only for the production purpose, but also the market purpose. Uncertainty increase FDI to China uh, for production decrease, and China's economic growth slow down. Uh, but however, uh, China is still very attractive as a market. It's uh, one of the biggest markets in the world. No question about it. And the size does matters. Okay, in 1980s, East Asia was enough to accommodate Japan. Japan could live in the East Asian countries, but uh, in 2020s and later, Asia will not be enough to accommodate two uh, Asian giants, China and India. Now, China are interested in the One Belt, One Road Initiative, and also China uh, is penetrating, penetrating the African market. African market is very close to Europe uh, uh, compared to Japan, of course. And uh, what happened, uh, do you know, uh, 47 years ago, October 5th? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, uh, RPC, People Republic of China, became a member of not only of the United Nations, but also Security Council. At that time, uh, China's per capita GDP just 1% of the United States, but uh, it becomes a Security Council members. Oh, the huge thing. Who supported the uh, RPRC? Of course, African nations. So uh, China has a close tie with the uh, African nations uh, since then. So uh, this is uh, uh, Africa's import, uh, mostly from now uh, China, right? The China's uh, ex export to the Africa is increasing very rapidly, but other countries uh, export to Africa as is kind of decreasing these days, right? And uh, how about uh, uh, Africa's import from China divided by the Africa's import from EU 15s, right? Now, over 2015, almost 60%. Now, of course, uh, over 60%. In 10 years, it becomes one, one to one, okay? Uh, so, Lessons should be emphasized. Trade deficit is a is domestic problem. It cannot be solved the trade policies. Uncertainty is matters. And uh, most important thing, watch out what's happening behind the conflict, right? Uh, it is very important. People are looking at the conflict. Maybe people like, most people like conflict, fights, or those kind of things. But what's happening behind the conflict, behind the fight, behind the, uh, behind those kind of things, that is very important. Uh, okay, so summary. Uh, do, you remember, uh, do you know that on September 26, uh, just one week ago, US and Japan agreed to enter the negotiating TAG, TAG, Trade Agreement on Goods. Uh, this is a joint trade of the US. Uh, US uh, wants bilateral negotiation, and tariff reduction, especially on the agricultural product. Japan want to avoid U.S.-Japan FTA and trade hike on the car. 
And this is sometimes called win-win. TAG is abbreviated Trump of a good deal. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, Japan emphasizes uh, this kind of things. For market access, Japan's previous economic partnership, including uh, US-Japan uh, EPA, uh, constitutes the maximum level. So US-Japan economic partnership agreement is an important negotiation asset. I think that it works. And hopefully use it uh, bargaining chips in negotiating with the Trump administrations. Okay, this is some, ah, this is a kind of brief summaries. And what's the end of that? Okay, please look at the end. How uh, did uh, US-Japan uh, trade conflict end it? Biggest one is Japan, the economic slowdown and the US growth recovery. That ended the conflict. How about the current one? Uh, China's economic slowdown, maybe, and US growth slowdown, maybe. Now, uh, US economy is very good in shape, right? And they're importing a lot of things, right? Uh, the biggest problem is that the US consume more than they produce. That's it. Okay, thank you very much for your attention. Thanks. You had a joint presentation? Yeah. Oh, okay. So we saved oh. some time. Yeah, yeah. As I said uh, at first, right? He did a research. I will talk. And you talk. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. so thank you, thank that's you very teamwork. much. That's a teamwork. Wonderful. So we, we saved some time. Uh, so, so, so look, uh, André, I'm turning uh, to you uh, last, um, not only because of the alphabet, but also to bring all the various strands uh, together that we discussed. I mean, I think. What was, of course, very important in the last presentation was, was China, and we so far haven't discussed uh, China um, and the role of China, not only as, as a trading nation, but, of course, as a geostrategic rival to the United States, um, which I think certainly is on the top um, of the minds of policymakers in Washington. Um, and uh, and so, so I guess the whole trade discussion um, also has to be understood through um, through the geostrategic um, um, agenda. And perhaps that's, that's my first point, and if you could, could dwell a little bit more on that. I think the, the, second, the second, of course, uh, important issue that we might want to discuss a bit further is the signaling effect that the EU-Japan uh, agreement had on various trade agreements, and you also mentioned that. Um, uh, this was, of course, noted in Washington very strongly. Why is the EU uh, coming to a deal with Japan? Um, why are we not doing this? Um, uh, this was certainly part of the conversation in, uh, in Washington. Um, and I guess uh, that, that raises the question, are we seeing here a turnaround in, in U.S. trade policy, uh, perhaps towards more uh, trade deals, um, again, uh, with uh, like-minded uh, nations, whatever that, that means? Uh, and perhaps the last point, uh, André, on which, uh, and I think you have other points, of course, but I mean, I'm, I'm just raising some questions, but I, I think the last point which you perhaps might want to dwell on a little bit more is, um, is this inequality issue, which I think you also cover in your study on, uh, on EU-Japan uh, trade agreement. Thank you. Thank you, Guntram. I will, I will try to, uh, to, to tackle some of those, uh, of those points. Um, and um, it's a pleasure to be here on the uh, the panel with uh, 
with Maria and with our uh, Japanese uh, colleagues. And let me first say that I basically agree with what has been said. Um, and I will try to add some elements from, uh, from my side. The first one, and I will be a, a bit of a departure from the discussion we have had so far, and I want to make that very, very clear. Um, I am one of the uh, co-authors uh, of, uh, of the study uh, that was presented this morning, and uh, uh, a study that makes a very positive uh, assessment of the uh, EU-Japan uh, agreement, and I'm not going back to that. However, uh, I think I am known, and I don't want to go back to my, uh, to my deep belief, I am known to, be, to have been a strong opponent to uh, regional uh, trade uh, agreements. So my, uh, and I've devoted maybe last 30 years uh, to uh, write and to try to convince, including trade commissioners, not to go down the path of uh, free trade uh, agreements. Now, my view uh, was always uh, coming from, I think, almost a strong moral, uh, not just economic, but moral viewpoint uh, of the uh, superiority of the rules-based multilateral trading system. And uh, to me, the multilateral trading system does really imbibe the Article 1. Article 1 says everything. And I, as I always said, you know, for, say for the last 30 years, 40 years, there is a reason why something is Article 1 non-discrimination, and there is a reason why the article in the GATT that does allow regional trade agreement, free trade agreements, customs union, is Article 24. The founding fathers, and sorry, they were only founding fathers uh, at that time, there were no founding mothers. There must have been a reason why one was Article 1 and one was Article 24. And it's clear that Article 24 that does allow free trade agreement and customs union, by the way, the EU is created as uh, Article 24, it was clear that it was meant to be an exception. Right? Comes out, after they wrote all those articles, they put Article 24. But Article 1 was non-discrimination. I think non-discrimination has good political, had good political reasons, good economic reasons. Discrimination, you know, it's not uh, the most ideal way you want to organize uh, economics. And you know, you can call it preferences. Preferences is a nice way. And not so nice ways to call it discrimination. When you are making among yourself, EU and Japan, we are giving preference to one another. In other words, you are discriminating vis-a-vis -vis third parties. That's it. For the outsiders, it's less nice. For the insiders, it's preferences. For the others, it's discrimination. So I personally have not subscribed to that in my entire life, I would say. Uh, I was not raised on those values. I'm raised on the values of non-discrimination. Is in a sense the EU for political, for economic reasons. And what I always object to uh, in regional trade agreements in those, it's not just discrimination, it's fragmentation. Okay, we have agreement with Japan and we do some things, but then we do an agreement with Canada. Each of those agreements have different, different rules, different elements. And not, I think, the best way to, uh, in a sense, manage globalization. This being said, I have not gone back to, I've not abandoned my values 
You should never abandon your values. If you abandon your values, you're dead, right? That's on what you, you, you're resting. Now, and I'm happy to hear that uh, when Maria spoke, when the commissioner speaks, when I heard a number of European uh, heads of state who spoke at the UN uh, last week, they did put forward multilateralism indeed as an important value for us. I think that's important. Now, yes, I want us to be also realistic. And this is where, you know, for somebody like me, it's ex we are living through extremely difficult times because on the one hand, you have your values, and your value saying, this is absolutely wrong. And all that we have been doing for the last 30 years of you know, doing one agreement and another agreement, then you, the other one does an agreement. And everybody, well, you know, I have to do this agreement because the other one is doing an agreement. And I have to get level playing field. And that is correct. And then you get into this sort of realistic viewpoint. And yes, on a realistic viewpoint, this is fine. And I would say that once you accept, because the way the world has evolved, because of Trump, because a number of factors, uh, because we have an EU-Korea agreement, and you know, I understand that in a sense, Japan is discriminated against Korea in the in the EU market. All of those things are very important and realistic. You know, one is to look at business. All of those things. Once you look in this light and you accept the notion of having a free trade agreement, my view is that the EU-Japan agreement is a great agreement. There's no doubt about that. There's nothing that I can find in this agreement that I don't like. Once I have accepted the notion that we engage into free trade agreement for a number of reasons. Call it realism, call it whatever you want. Okay, once you, you know, I have done violence to myself uh, and then cross that, uh, that bridge, then I said, this is a great agreement, beautiful agreement, including for reasons of inequality, because indeed you are dealing with two countries that are rather similar. And as we say in the study, really, what this agreement is going to do is mostly foster intra-industry trade. That's what will happen because we are so we are so similar in a sense. And yes, sure, there's a little bit on displacement of this, a little bit of that, but most of the displacement happens within sectors. And uh, it's a totally different than if you are doing agreement with countries that are very, very different. Okay, that's the nature of agreement with countries that are very similar to you, not just in values, but also in economic terms. It doesn't lead to much disruption. It leads to better organization within, uh, within sectors. And so I personally do not expect, sure, that there's going to be some uh, pains, you know, no gains without pains, but I'm not uh, envisioning that much, much pains out of this agreement, much more, much more gains. And yes, in terms of regulatory elements and, you know, in terms of setting sort of standards, I think this is a very nice agreement. As you say, I, there's nothing in this agreement I can look and look and look deep. I don't see anything that I say, oh gosh, uh, this agreement is doing things that is really violating my principles. Except for the fact that it's another one more of those free trade agreements that uh, obviously now we know. Uh, Japan was, when I was a younger man, uh, a younger person, Japan would have never entered into a free trade agreement. Never. Uh, the US would have never done so also. So that's my first point. Second point. I'm delighted also that now EU and Japan, because you spoke in the previous presentation of the clashes between US and Japan, which have been very numerous over the years, and you spoke about Super 301, and you know, sure. Uh, I remember the, uh, this famous book in, in, in the US, you know, in the 1990s, uh, who is bashing whom? 
Remember who is bashing whom? And this was about US and Japan, okay, bashing each other. Okay, fine on trade. But by the way, when Japan, to go back further in history, and in the privilege of age is to go back in history, in the 1950s, when Japan entered into the GATT, Japan is not one of the founding countries of the, of the GATT for historical reasons, shall we say. Uh, neither was uh, Germany. Uh, when Japan enters into the GATT, European countries were opposed to it, absolutely opposed. And uh, European countries did use one of the clauses in the GATT agreement, Article 35, not much known by most people, but Article 35 to say, we essentially are not granting to Japan a number of elements. Uh, but the US wanted Japan to come into, into, the, uh, into the GATT for geopolitical reasons, and I think that was a good element. But you know, I remember when I started to work in the commission in the late 80s, Japan was not exactly our friend. <laughs> not exactly, right? Uh, Anti-dumping cases against Japan was extremely numerous. Number one target of EU anti-dumping was Japan. VERs, all of those kind of things that you, you, you put forward. So now the world has changed entirely, and this is good. Uh, you know, there were difficult times, and uh, now we are not in that anymore. And this agreement, I think, is also testimony to that. Yes, we have converged, in a sense, in many, many ways. And we have converged so much that we can do an agreement, uh, which is this, uh, this very, very nice agreement. So last point, uh, Guntram, you asked me about China, and uh, now I come back to what Maria uh, discussed, WTO uh, reform. Uh, I do think that indeed, uh, now that the EU and Japan uh, are going, presumably, uh, to put in place the agreement, to have the agreement ratified by the European Parliament, I hope, by the uh, Japanese uh, diet. Uh, this will be behind us. Uh, I do hope indeed that the nice words uh, that have been pronounced that both the EU and Japan are strong believers in the multilateral trading system uh, will be uh, followed by uh, action. And the question is what, what to do? Uh, I do still think that uh, it's difficult, obviously, in this 21st century, where the world is very different from what it was in 1947 when the GATT was created, or what it was in 1995 when the WTO was, was created. Uh, we were in a different geopolitical uh, situation. The US was in a different position, and China or other emerging countries were in a very, very different position. So today, we need to rethink, reform the WTO, thinking that indeed it has to be the World Trade Organization. Before, in a sense, it was half of the world, right? When the WTO is created, there's no China in the WTO, there's no Russia in the WTO, a number of countries were not there. In a sense, big chunks of the world, they were not part. They were the World Trade Organization, and through that much of the world, but a number of countries were not in the system. And uh, it's true, you know, Pedro, you, you spoke about, uh, Luis, sorry, you, you spoke about, sorry, Luis Portero, you spoke about the quad. No, the quad that you spoke about, that's the quad of yesterday, right? The, luckily, we are not in that world anymore. We are not in the world where the world is dominated by the US, EU, Japan, and, uh, and Canada. There are the Indias, the Brazils, uh, China, 
well, Africa, you know, Africa is coming up, and uh, that's uh, very, very good. Those countries also are being becoming part of fast part of the of of the, of the system. And yes, we it's disruptive. It's disruptive, no doubt, uh, because those countries are different. But as I said, Japan was very different from what we were in the 1950s. That's why there was the reluctance. By the way, there was also reluctance by some in Japan, like in China. You know, should we join, should we join? Is it going to constrain their behavior? All of those discussions were there in Japan and in Europe and in the US in the 1950s. So yes, you know, we, we are again in that situation. What I'm hoping for is that uh, and I know it's going to be difficult. Uh, I think it is good that there is this trilateral uh, initiative that you discussed, and, you know, been several ministerial meetings between the US, uh, Japan, and, and the EU, essentially to discuss what is called in the, in the report third countries, third, but there is not third countries, it's really a, a third country, which is China. It's good that the EU also has the bilateral discussion with China. I'm really hoping that the EU and Japan, that do share common values, that do share the fact that we do a lot of trade with, uh, with China, we do a lot of trade with, with the United States, we have common partnership with the United States also in military terms, in security terms. So we do share a lot of things. I'm hoping that we together, the EU and Japan, can convince our two other big partners, China and the US, together, not just three of us, but four of us, to move forward on reform of the WTO. Uh, reform that indeed uh, a reform that will ensure that this agreement is not one more agreement that is destroying the multilateral system. That's one way one could look at it. Uh, but rather an agreement that at a time which is indeed a difficult time uh, for the system is renewing the pledge uh, of those that really believe in the system and who need it the most. And I think Japan and the EU are among the big uh, economic powers, those that need uh, the multilateral system the most, that you know, together uh, we stand together for the multilateral trading system. Thank you. Well, let me let me give the floor perhaps to, to Maria to, to react to a few points. I mean, I'd, lo I'd love to hear, of course, more on, on WTO reform and what is your thinking. And yeah, no, but let me first confirm that the European Commission really is multilateralist at heart. We really think it makes sense to have, uh, instead of the spaghetti bowl that Luis mentioned earlier, uh, to have rules that apply to practically everybody in the world, all the 164 members of the WTO. Um, and for many years after the, the latest round was launched in the WTO, the DUA development agenda, was it maybe 17 years ago? I mean, for many years there was a moratorium uh, in the Commission on negotiating new bilateral agreements uh, because the DOA agenda was the only one in town. Then, of course, work got stuck, didn't deliver very much, and others started to negotiate with each other, and I guess that's when the European Commission said, well, maybe we should also have a few bilateral uh, negotiations, and now uh, we are extremely busy. But we do not necessarily see this in contradiction to the multilateral um, rulemaking. We also think that in bilateral agreements we can break new ground that later can uh, also set new benchmarks uh, at multilateral level. 
Uh, but it's true that we, maybe we have been too passive for many years, but now we are really, really uh, prioritizing hard uh, to revitalize the WTO and modernize it and, and, and uh, get better rules in place. And of course, it has a lot to do with the uh, enormous growth uh, of China. It didn't matter so much when China was a small economy, but now it is a big economy. And if they are not playing by, by fair rules, uh, if we don't have a reasonably level playing field, it does cause a lot of tension. I mean, that is the tension, the number one problem, I think, today in the, in the global trading system. And then we try to attack this by working together with others, agreeing new sensible rules. We think that is much better than, than starting uh, unilateral little trade wars here and there. Um, so so I, I really, really hope that this will be successful. I think it's absolutely key. Um, but then maybe if I may make a comment also to what Professor uh, Nakamura said before, uh, of course, it's not at all helpful to have a trade deficit as a benchmark of whether you have a good trade policy or not. Uh, so it's, it's not very helpful that President Trump is so obsessed with trade deficits. And you talked about the way that an aging society automatically you know, gets into to trade deficits. But I think also the latest US tax reform um, very well may increase uh, the trade deficit because it will lead to new demand, including to demand of imported stuff. So all of a sudden, their tax reform becomes our headache. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, I don't know if we should look for too much, much rationale here, because I know that Canada actually has uh, a deficit uh, versus US, and they are still uh, you know, not treated very nicely in all of, at all locations. Um, okay, maybe I should stop there. Uh, there is more to say. No, please. Yeah, okay. Then maybe if I could say something more then about China. Uh, somebody said here that, um, yeah, I think it was Professor Nakamura as well, China is still a very attractive market. Yes, uh, but, but I think it's interesting to note uh, what our companies are saying and also look at the investment figures over the last couple of years. Uh, of course, the companies that are established in China do not dare to speak out and criticize the, the host country because there may be repercussions. But it's very interesting to, to see what uh, the survey that our Chamber of Commerce in Beijing does every year uh, because they anonymize the answers. And there we hear that our companies say that they now feel less welcome, more discriminated against, and they complain about, um, uh, about increased politicization of company boards and of forced technology transfers, etc., etc. And we'll also look at the numbers. Uh, EU investments in China were record low both last year and two years ago, and I think it's the similar pattern from Japan and US. Uh, if you look at their investments in China. Um, on the other hand, uh, Chinese investments in Europe have, have grown a lot. And I, I, well, I think this also says something about which markets are open and which are, are not. Um, thank you. Professor Nakamura, did you want to add a comment on? No, but per perhaps let me let me add on the issue of China. I mean, certainly we we've had a, an, a large event here uh, two weeks ago with a with a de delegation of um, of Chinese uh, uh, officials and 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 thinkers and so on coming here, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they came here, of course, uh, with a with a very sort of uh, view. Okay, um, we are under pressure from uh, from the U.S. Uh, can we can we strike? Uh, um, 
uh, agreements with the European Union. And, and, and I think the, the reply was uh, that we, uh, that I think was quite, quite clearly given, and uh, you echoed, just echoed that, is that, well, actually, the Euro Chamber of Commerce report is very negative on investment conditions in China. And of course, we share, and I think uh, Luis also said that, we share a lot of the concerns that the US administration has as regards um, uh, forced trans uh, transfer of technology, but also state-owned enterprises, um, uh, the role of the state in the economy more generally. I think we had the number that uh, a credit uh, is extremely subsidized within China, but only for Chinese companies, not for, for foreign companies, and so on. And so, so, so I, I guess the, the, the question is, um, uh, okay, we can, we can hope, like André, and I guess that's where sort of, uh, sort of the romantic side, the hopeful side is, well, let's hope that we can all four agree on sort of good and, and similar standards. And in a sense, when, when China entered the WTO, I think we all sort of were rightly or wrongly, um, in a sense, assuming uh, China would, uh, would gradually uh, move towards our uh, model of corporate governance, our model of, of standards, our, our model of state-owned enterprises, and so on and so forth. The reality is it has not, and probably um, there was a backward movement in the last, in the last couple of years. Um, and so, so then I guess the question is, and then what? And then what uh, in terms of strategic response? And I was struck that you, uh, Maria, mentioned, mentioned quite positively actually now the evolving relation with the US. I mean, perhaps we are, we are after all um, improving uh, the relations and may even strike some, some new deals. Um, uh, is that uh, all a reflection of a rethinking uh, in the, Western world um, on um, including the country most of the <laughs> east uh, on on the role of uh, of China or um, or is it perhaps just a temporary um, blip? I mean, how 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 much is it a, a strategic rethinking? I mean, the, uh, the 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 improvement in relations that we are seeing between between Europe and and the United States. But I think it goes um, far back. I mean, we. We have so much in common, and the transatlantic relationship has always been very strong, and we have consistently tried to build a positive agenda, thinking that there is, there's practically nothing we want to do in this world that would not be easy to achieve if the U.S. were also on the same line, and vice versa. Um, um, so th there we are. And then, of course, uh, it hasn't been totally easy uh, lately to be a, a, a transatlanticist. Um, uh, but we have to stick with this, and and how uh, how 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 stable um, this relationship will be now. Um, I mean, we shall see. But we are committed. We are engaged. We are uh, happy to work with the U.S. Uh, on bilateral problems, but also um, in a wider context. And I think on China, the U.S. is a bit skeptical. Well, China will not agree to new rules anyway. Well, you know, let's see. I think. China knows very well that they have benefited a lot from being a member of the WTO in the last 16 uh, years, or whatever it is. Uh, so I, I actually do think that the Chinese will see uh, their own interest in, in being constructive and cooperative in, in reforming the, the rules in, in a sensible way. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful. It will not be difficult. It will not be easy, but we, 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 just, we just have a duty to do this. André. Yeah, about the, the, the rules and about uh, China. Um, now, I think it is fair to say 
that um, there is resentment uh, on both sides, I would say on the side of China, vis-a-vis -vis us, let's call them us here, Europe, Japan, the US, and vice versa. Now, I think you indicated very well what is or, let's say, resentment or disappointment, right? Uh, whether it was reasonable or not, there was, at least implicitly, uh, the expectation that uh, 15 years uh, after China joined the WTO in 2001, by the time that this transition period uh, was over, China would have converged in its economic, if not political, but let's say at least economic system towards our system. Whether that expectation was reasonable, whether it was dream, whether it was romanticism, that's a different issue. But I think that expectation was there. And uh, there is disappointment. Of all of those who held that expectation, that e expectation has been disappointed. Um, I think it's fair to say also that there was no test put in the agreement. There was nothing said, well, you know, at the end of 15 years, uh, we will test you. Uh, we will see whether indeed uh, you have fulfilled some kind of conditions that we are laying down here, which we, the members of the club, after all, the WTO is a club. There's no doubt it is a club. And so it's a club where you know, nobody has rights to be member. You have the right to discuss with current members whether you can accede and under what terms. And that's why there was an agreement long negotiated, started under the GATT, continuing the WTO. We did not put a test. And uh, after that started to be wrangle and, you know, okay. So uh, I would say there, there's an issue, yes, uh, we did not put a test, but we are nonetheless disappointed. Now on the Chinese side, the, 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 the feeling is, uh, yes, we understand that you may be disappointed, uh, but by the way, you put harsh conditions with us to accede into the WTO, harsher than you had ever done to anybody else. We were singled out, as no country had been singled out. They say, Japan is a bit of a similar situation back in the 1950s, except that it was not a WTO, so it's not the same accession kind of rules, and we were in a different geopolitical uh, condition. Japan was not then a rival for the United States, uh, quite on the, on the contrary, in a sense, as China is now. So, but I think from the China side, there is a thing. We, um, you know, we accepted to extremely harsh conditions, and now you are wanting to add. I mean, this is, I'm saying that is their view. So there is this problem uh, on both sides. We feel that we gave trust to you, you know, you would enter. We knew you were not ready, but okay, fine, you enter. And after 15 years, you would have converged and things. And they felt you were really harsh on us, and now you're again harsh on us. And we made so much concessions then in 2001. No, you want further concessions with us. No, I mean, you want to humiliate us. So this is, I think this is the nature of, of the problem. Personally, it's worth whatever my personal view is, Personally, this trilateral discussion can be good or can be bad. Uh, can be good if you know, one then manages to have a serious discussion with the Chinese. It's bad, I think, if this is a 
grouping of countries that are going to want to impose on China certain things. Those are the conditions. Uh, then we are headed for the end of the WTO. This is what will happen. End of the WTO as we know it today. What will happen? Will it be a different kind of WTO? Will it go back to the gut? I don't know. I personally predict pretty bad, uh, pretty bad outcome if we continue. The Chinese saying, you know, uh, you, you are being very harsh with us and, as you have never been before, and us saying you are behaving like nobody is, is behaving, and even though they are not violating rules on state-owned enterprises because they are not there. You know, why didn't we put those? Where, why didn't we put in the agreement then state-owned enterprise? Why didn't we do it? There's a, there's a reason. Why. why didn't we put rule more on subsidies? I can ask that. Right? Why didn't we do that? We knew what China was. We knew that there was this problem. Why didn't we put a test in 15 years? We did not do that. So I'm not saying that we're in the right. I'm saying that my view is that this is not going to be an easy problem to get out of. And one possibility of not getting out of the problem is that the WTO is going to suffer. And I think this is a very, very likely scenario, by the way. So I think one has to manage this very, very well. And that's why my recommendation is that one manages to enlarge this trilateral, which is doing good work so far, to try to put the Chinese into this picture, and that we do not present to the Chinese. This is the front, the, the old quad. This is the old quad with three countries, because, OK, uh, uh, to, to, this old quad is dead. It's dead. That was the 20th century. We are now in the 21st century. And there is not just China. There are Indians that are looking for this. And although India is scared dead of, uh, of China, no doubt about this, uh, nonetheless, it's watching also how we, the industrialized countries, the all power, we are behaving towards the uh, emerging countries. So I think we have to be a little bit uh, forward-looking here and know what is it we want. We should want, as our absolute objective, the multilateral trading system to uh, surmount the difficulty into which we are. That's what should be our objective. And yes, it is a very difficult problem. The China issue is very, very difficult, but that's what we need to surmount. Multilateralism is very hard work. <laughs> so, so let me open um, the floor um, for questions, remarks, comments. Please. Uh, um. Is there a microphone? Uh, uh, um. so, so can we get a, uh, at, the, at the end? Hi, I'm Alan Beattie. I'm, I write for the Financial Times. A uh, question mainly for Mrs. Sanius, I think. Um, as you pointed out, it's Donald Trump um, threatening that has done a lot, probably more than anything, to spur uh, Europe and Japan into coming up with WTO reform efforts. I've even heard Chinese officials describe this as appeasement. Um, at the same time, um, oh, sorry, let me just uh, <clears throat> let me just answer that then. What do you think of the credibility of, of European reform efforts, given that? Um, can I also just add that it was also US uh, threats that brought EU to the bilateral negotiating table, and I think it's fair to say that in doing so, the EU broke its own promise not to negotiate with the US unless steel and aluminium tariffs were lifted. So to what extent is this genuinely a, a trilateral effort, and how much of it is essentially Europe being defensive towards the US? 
Okay, um, let me, let me, there's a lady there in the back. Thank you. My name is Hubi Kamela from the European Political Strategy Center of the European Commission. Thank you so much for the interesting uh, discussions and presentation. Uh, I would like to, to add one element into, into discussion of trade, which is the new technologies. Uh, since this morning, they have been only briefly mentioned in terms of number of patents um, that Chinese are introducing, where we see a, a, a big difference between, let's say, developed economies and, and China. Uh, so when we think about these technologies, I mean, we see them in our daily life, be it you know, artificial intelligence, the blockchain technology, and they are having significant, they're starting to have a significant impact on how the uh, economies are functioning, especially some sectors. So when we think about trade, we might want to think about the blockchain technology, right? And then we think about the GDPR in Europe, right? which has many different elements, but is not compatible with the blockchain technology. So for that, this is a question first for the Europeans. How are we, are we, I mean, are we embracing enough the new technologies? Shall we do more? Uh, how do we deal with the GDPR, which is not com compatible with some elements of, of these new technologies? And looking what ha what's happening in China, frankly speaking, it's quite scary. And uh, we should uh, take a closer look at that because it will have the impact on the economy and certainly on how the trade is, fu is functioning. You know, think about the logistics, about transportation, supply chains, and so on. So I would very much appreciate your views on, 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 on that element uh, in trade. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I can take a, a few further comments or questions. Gabriel, you get a mic. Thank you. I have uh, two questions, uh, one for, for Ms. Uh, Mrs. Asenius. Uh, you said that there will, won't be a TTIP light or a TTIP neo, and you need a new mandate. Uh, I, don't, I don't really understand that. If, uh, if we are negotiating something that's on industrial tariffs, why would that, that not be covered by the old mandate, which, amongst many other things, had also that objective? Uh, and then a point maybe for, for André. Um, isn't one of the fundamental problems we see uh, within the WTO, but and also bilaterally between the EU and the US, that we have a lot of asymmetries. I mean, in, in investment, it's, it's very clear. The Chinese are essentially closed. Europe is essentially open. And uh, in such an environment, how do you negotiate? Because one party has nothing to offer anymore. I mean, uh, uh, we can't offer more openness because we are already open. And uh, would that not, in order to make progress, doesn't it, would game theory not tell us we need to uh, we need to walk away from the status quo as the fallback option? And I mean, in a sense, Donald Trump does exactly this. You know, he, he says, uh, uh, I, need to, "I need to build up some some very credible threat uh, in order to to make progress." And I'm, I'm not sure whether in Europe we want to enter into this game. It's it's a muscle game. It's awful in many ways, but I don't see really many alternatives uh, given these uh, given these asymmetries that we simply observe okay please we, you can write hello my name is sugimoto i work for the japanese trading house mitsui and uh, thank you very much for today's uh, exposure and i hope that uh, this deal enter into force very soon and we enjoy all of this 
Um, I have a question. Uh, since we share a lot of uh, values and we mentioned a lot about uh, multilateralism, uh, my question is more in the future. Do you see this uh, EU-Japan EPA become uh, really a platform to become a, a multilateral a platform in the future, accepting other members to enter or like a plurilateral things? Because I we see a lot of bilateral dealing going on in the world and I feel like in a negative sense, it's become multiple rules in the world.